All right. That's enough. Go to ABGB afterwards and continue that conversation. <laughs> I hope you get to meet someone new. Good morning, everybody. And happy November. I'm so excited that it's November. I love this time of year for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that I get to re-watch some of the stories that I love or re-experience stories. And I'm highly emotional these days, so it's helpful to me to re-watch things because I know exactly what I'm signing up for. Uh, I'm not going to get into a situation where I think I'm watching like a lighthearted comedy and it turns into a deep exploration of undealt with trauma and grief, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I'm not going to find myself in a situation where I think I've signed up for like a colorful, foreign, cult hit, like game show looking thing that's a horrific, violent, stressful story, Squid Games. And I won't, I can avoid situations like the one I was at the gym recently, in at the gym. I'm on the elliptical reading a novel that a used-to-be friend recommended as like a fun Shakespearean romp that has an unexpected and tragic death in the middle of it. And I get to this part and my legs like stop elliptically and I'm weeping into my mask and people are wondering if I need help. And I do, I do need help right now. And what I need is for stories to stick inside a very narrow genre, not surprise me and tell me from the outset if it's something that I can handle in the third trimester. So I'm thrilled about all the holiday movies and stories to come. Unfortunately, this is not what the lectionary gives us this week. Uh, we have a very slippery story in front of us today. This one has changed genres on me at least three times. I was first introduced to it as what English teachers might refer to as like a hero's journey story. But when I returned to it as an adult, it struck me as more of a tragedy. And then the more I've sat with these past few weeks, I'm starting to experience it as a profound mystery. So I'd love to see what you see in this story. Let's take a look. We're reading from Mark 12, 38 uh, through 44. Jesus denounces the scribes. As he taught, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The widow's offering. He sat down, Jesus, opposite the treasury, and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. A hero's journey, a tragedy, and a mystery too, I think. If, like me, you grew up with this story, I wonder if you too were first introduced to this as the story of a hero. And as usual, Jesus takes us to the edge to find the center of things. We are not to look upon the religious elite, but the character whom everyone else looks past. I wonder, do you see the widow as a model contributor, an example of generosity? Were you taught that she instructs us about the mathematics of tithing, that what matters to God is not the amount that we give, but the attitude behind it, or perhaps the percentage? Do we learn through her that the true gift is to give all that we have, towards God's kingdom. Perhaps, 
Certainly, there is a story to be told here. For we would be foolish to imagine that even being here in church today or watching online costs each of us the same thing. It doesn't. Jesus sees beyond the action taken to the heart behind it, and he encourages us to develop this deeper gift of sight. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes captures this challenge. He writes, this is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. Most of the man or woman's psychological makeup is probably due to his body. When his body dies, all that will fall off him, and the real central man, the thing that chose, that made the best or worst out of this material will stand naked. All sorts of nice things which we thought our own, but which were really due to a good digestion will fall off some of us. All sorts of nasty things which were due to complexes or bad health will fall off others. We shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he or she really was. There will be surprises. These scribes in our story, for whom life has come easily, born into good homes and generational wealth, educated in schools with small classroom sizes and great college counseling, the members of a network that yields internships, signing bonuses and promotions, teaching them how to charm and influence their way to long robes, window seats and trading options. Jesus says it's all relative. We must look deeper at the motor inside, that which truly defines us, the thing that chose. And when we look at the scribes who give only out of what they will not miss, we see a more shallow generosity than we see in the widow, who gave far less but sacrificed far more. What becomes possible when we learn to see the world through these new metrics? How does it change not just how we aspire to participate, but how we perceive one another? We might begin to see that it, what it costs someone else to be with their family at the holidays is not the same as what it costs us. We might see that what it takes for that child to read out loud in class is not the same as what it takes for the others. For some of us, saying no might be an evasion or a shirking of responsibility, while for others, saying no is an act of tremendous courage. When we look at the story through this light, we might hear Jesus inviting us to see or at least to imagine the story underneath the surface activity, the meaning under the measurement. And so perhaps he does praise the widow as a hero, the same way he praises you when you don't blow up at the ref at your child's soccer game, an act of withholding which costs the parents standing next to you nothing, but reflects your lifelong journey to control the rage you were raised to perceive was normal. The same way God praises you when you take one small step towards community, when you show up to the first Sunday brunch today, even if you won't know anybody. Not you extroverts, but those of you who struggle with social anxiety. God sees that it costs you more, even if no one else does. And she praises the courage behind this offering. There are many among us in this community, many of you sitting here, who carry deep church pain, who have been excluded, or shamed, or stolen from in the name of a God you no longer recognize. And you may be on your last penny when it comes to spiritual community. Maybe you're sitting in the back or you're watching us online with every reason not to. You may need to soak in the comfort of anonymity for a season, to take a back seat from serving or giving. Your very presence here may cost you more than some of us can imagine. 
And if your story has given you reason to despair, I hope that you hear today that your bit of hope and courage, however minuscule it feels, is itself a heroic offering. The band's going to play a few verses of an old hymn. And as we listen, there'll be some questions to reflect on on the screen. And then we'll continue to examine how this story might function through another lens. But perhaps it is a hero's story. The story of a woman who sacrificed that which meant nothing to the world, but which Jesus saw meant everything to her. Perhaps it is an invitation for us to be just as brave. Yes, this might be the story of a hero, but then again, it might be a tragedy. Let's look back at verse 40, where Jesus condemns the behavior of the religious elite. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. If Jesus denounces the devouring of widows' houses, then how could he possibly be pleased with what unfolds here? What if he doesn't draw attention to the widow with a spirit of praise, but a spirit of lament or even anger for the system and the values that conditioned her to give all she had so that the leaders may continue to live lives of wealth and comfort? This is not an attack on Jewish religious practice. It might be an attack on any religious institution that protects and perpetuates egotism and greed as it oppresses those in need. After all, if we zoom out a bit, Mark situates this moment with the widow inside of a larger critique and a very gloomy forecast for the temple. It comes after Jesus curses the fig tree for failing to produce good fruit. And just after the widow's story, Jesus will foretell of the destruction of the temple. And we'll take a closer look at that passage next week. But for our purposes today, it's worth considering the implication that the woman has just given the last of what she had to live on to a failing institution. Is there some tragic irony here? Was her gift a waste? You know, for all the social ills that Christians have decided that Jesus was against and taken up the charge to vocally condemn, we conveniently, historically overlook greed, don't we? This well-camouflaged evil goes unchecked in the most powerful of places, including our churches. These temples were meant to provide for people experiencing poverty, and instead they took from them in order to dress the scribes in fancy clothes and throw great banquets, and Jesus is having none of it. For it is not possible to have a true, mystical encounter of unity with God that does not include unity with all of life. As it is written in 1 John, you can't love God and not people. 
So how then could an entire religious system have become so forgetful of those who are suffering, those who are central to God's concern? Love would not allow that. How have we as church leaders manipulated and valorized sacrifice to protect our own security? Love would not allow that. How have churches conditioned you to give of your time, your energy, your resources until you had next to nothing left for your families or your own health? Love would not allow that. How has the white American church directed its resources towards political allegiances and policies that continue to punish those burdened by poverty? Love would not allow that. How is it that the most Christian states are the most structurally racist? Love would not allow that. How have we given to those who are suffering only out of what we had to spare, refusing to experience discomfort in the pursuit of equity? How have we perpetuated an economic status quo that protects the few and punishes the rest? Love would not allow that. And how have we, ANC, at times inside these walls on South Lamar, gathered around a message of inclusion and justice work in order to preserve our progressive status, our appearance and influence, rather than to actually participate in the liberation of those we say we exist to serve. Love would not allow that. And yet, we have at times, haven't we? If what is rising up in you is shame, I hope you can name and release that feeling. For there is grace waiting in the wings, ready to transform our shame to lament, into awareness, which are far more productive places to work from. So let's return to the words of this hymn together and take another moment to reflect. Because perhaps this story is a tragedy and an opportunity for us to lament and to recommit to building God's kingdom, a more equitable world together. This is the story of a hero, somehow, and this story is a tragedy, somehow. So if it is both, then at some paradoxical core, it is also a profound mystery. Aren't we all trying to be faithful inside of failing systems? Let's not forget, the woman in this story had a choice to make, to view her only as some saintly generosity robot or as a victim of coercion is to deny her humanity, her agency, the thing that chose. And the choice was not just to make a financial contribution, but to, as Jesus points out, offer her whole life. And those words should echo in our ears as this is the last scene in Jesus' public ministry. 
What follows is the passion narrative in which Jesus too will lay down his whole life. He will do so in an act of solidarity with the suffering. And like the widow, he too will give his offering to a misguided system and people so broken that they, that we, would sanction the murder of the very face of love. As Richard Rohr says, most Christians simply worship the historical event of Jesus and thank him for it instead of setting out on the same path ourselves. But in the unnamed widow in our story, we see her choice foreshadowing and embodying that of Jesus. What is this outpouring of love with every reason to withhold? What is this faith in the promise of God's kingdom of justice and peace expressed inside a present reality of inequality and conflict? We might be tempted to look upon the widow and Jesus as fools. But in stories that take place in an absurd and brutal world, the fools are the ones to pay attention to, for the reasonable ones are in compliance with chaos. The fools place worth where the common folk do not see it. The fools see that the meaning does not belong to the number of coins in our pocket, the prestige and power we enjoy, nor is it in the buildings we erect or the legacies we protect, but in some mysterious expression of love that lies beyond. The mystics can freely give of that which we all cling to, and in doing so, they embody this faith in that which defies our ingrained system of measurement. That is, faith in a reality defined by the hope of rebirth, restitution, and restoration. Faith that failing religious regimes can be, resur can be resurrected. Faith that love destroyed can be redeemed. But what if my investment isn't safe, we wonder? What if what I have to offer is penny-sized and won't make a dent in alleviating the suffering in my city? Hades experienced another earthquake. What does that mean for the nonprofit I support? What if I withdraw my support from a school or a company that hurts those in need and nothing changes? What if no one notices? What if I don't have enough left? Or the question that keeps me up at night these days, what if the church is beyond resuscitation? People were leaving the American church long before COVID, and now they aren't all coming back. Are we as foolish as a widow offering our lives to a dying project? There's a governing document from a Presbyterian church that I stumbled across this week, and I want to close by reading you this excerpt. They wrote, The church is called to be a sign in and for the world of the new reality which God has made available in Jesus Christ. How? By healing and reconciling and binding up wounds, ministering to the needs of the poor, the sick, the lonely, and the powerless, engaging in the struggle to free people from sin, fear, oppression, hunger, and injustice, giving itself and its substances to the service of those who suffer. The church is called to undertake this mission, even at the risk of losing its life. The church is called to undertake this mission, even at the risk of losing its life. Maybe our oxygen won't be found in what we can recover of the thing we thought we knew, but in what we can surrender. For it could not have been the security of the widow's investment that compelled her to offer what she had. What if her act of release was simply an authentic response to love? Jesus models this technology over and over again, and it is through the practice of release that we can untangle ourselves from a story of climbing and hoarding and climbing and hoarding to participate in the mystery of mutual empowerment. For we will never accumulate our way to a life rooted in love. Yes, what if the widow and her penny is a holy mystery 
one we were never invited to solve, but to trust, to step into and experience for ourselves. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing this song together now that Mark has been playing and Christabel and sing the final verses as a community. Whether you have a high decibel level of faith today or just a whisper, any action of release is sacred, no matter how grand or small. And as we sing, let's be open to how the Spirit might be inviting each of us to release in our own way this week. Maybe it's our resources, but maybe it's our time, our spirit of judgment, our status seeking, our control, our fear. Let's sing together.